I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, came in today. Our current sermon series is Keys to Spiritual Growth. Uh, today, uh, we will conclude Lesson 9, which I began last Sunday on spiritual warfare, uh, overcoming Satan's attacks against the church. Now, as mentioned last Sunday, apart from God himself, there's absolutely nothing that Satan hates worse than the church, the church of the living God, the body of Christ, because the church is God's instrument to complete the mission that was begun by Jesus Christ. And that mission is to rescue people from Satan's captivity, uh, bringing them into Christ's kingdom. And the church accomplishes that mission by advancing the gospel of Christ, which is the God-given priority of the church. Therefore, Satan attacks the church in order to stop the advance of the gospel. And he does that by either corrupting the messenger, that's you and me, or he corrupts the message. Now, last Sunday, we began by uh, looking at an overview of Satan's origin that you see there, that uh, first point under your notes. And I'm not going to take the time to review all of that. If you missed the message, I would encourage you to go to our church website, edgewoodbaptistga.com, and you can uh, see the message uh, there. But uh, let me just sum it up this way. Uh, we discovered from the scriptures that Satan was the wisest, most beautiful, most powerful angel ever created by God. His original name was Lucifer, which means shining one, and he was created to have authority over the angelic realm and to lead the worship of God. Uh, tragically, we discover in the scripture that he became enamored by his own wisdom, by his own beauty and power, thinking, wait a minute, I shouldn't have to be worshiping another. Everyone should be worshiping me. Uh, and then his pride infected his heart. Uh, Lucifer led a rebellion against God where, again, tragically, one-third of the angels sided uh, with uh, Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer and the fallen angels, of course, were defeated by God in this attempt to uh, assume God's throne. Uh, they were cast out of heaven uh, onto earth where Lucifer continues to battle uh, the person, uh, the plan, and the people of God. Now, the second point in your sermon notes focuses on how Satan infiltrates the church to corrupt God's people and to distort God's message of the gospel. And you'll notice there that second point, Satan disguises himself as a shepherd of God's flock to deceive and divide the church and render her ineffective in advancing the gospel of Christ. And we ended last Sunday by examining those four passages listed there in your sermon notes. The Matthew 7 passage, the Acts 20, 2 Corinthians 11, and 2 Peter 2. Now from these passages, we learn the need to continually be on the alert for false shepherds. False shepherds who impersonate true shepherds in order to infiltrate the church, to devour God's flock, and to distort the gospel. Now this morning, 
we want to look at the tactics that they use. Uh, the tactics that uh, enable them uh, to be so successful in their devious deeds. So look at uh, letter A there. First, false shepherds exploit the church with persuasive words. False shepherds exploit the church with persuasive words. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. And in their greed, don't miss these words. What's the motive behind the heart of a false shepherd? Greed. So in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That Jude, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 passage reads, They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And then look at Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Stay away from them, the Apostle Paul says. Remember, Jesus says, don't even allow your mind to be exposed to their teachings. He says, such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interest. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. So notice, false shepherds generally have what? Charismatic winsome personalities, they have the gift of gab, and they use all of that to deceive and exploit people in order to build a successful ministry to serve their own greedy interest. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, they are masters, absolute masters, at disguising themselves to appear to be apostles of Christ, servants of righteousness. They do everything they do cloaked beneath the name of Jesus. They preach the name of Jesus. They teach from the Bible, but they will twist God's Word. They will misapply God's Word, which tragically perverts the true gospel and leads many, many people astray. Look at that letter B. False shepherds also will try to excite the church with a show of spiritual power. But, of course, you've got to ask, what's the spirit behind that power? And with a false shepherd, it's not the spirit of Christ. It is the spirit of the devil. And, of course, remember, we talked about them disguising themselves. And Paul said, what? Don't be surprised at this. Because even Satan is able to what? Disguise himself to appear as an angel of light. So, again, as we've shared so many times, Satan is at his best, not in the dark corners of this world, not in the gutters of this world, but in the light of God's church, how to, in, the, in the realm of truth to use it, to mistwist it, to misapply it. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 11 and 24. And many, circle that word many, and many false prophets, false shepherds will arise and will mislead. How many? Many. Many will arise, many will be misled, and notice, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Let me give you a great cross-reference right here. Please take your Bibles for a moment and turn to Matthew 7. I want to show you something. And this is a wonderful cross-reference. So again, Jesus says, many false prophets will arise... And when they do, they will mislead many. And they will put on an exciting show that uh, will be apparent demonstration of power uh, to deceive many. 
uh, to embrace their teachings. Look at Matthew chapter 7, what Jesus said in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now pause right there. He says there's a narrow gate, that leads to a narrow road that leads to eternal life. And how many find it? Few find it. But then he says there is this wide gate that opens up to a broad way that leads to what? Eternal destruction. Now, what you don't want to miss is this. The very next verse, verse 15. What does Jesus say? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What you need to realize that most people do not understand about this passage, when he talks about the narrow way that leads to eternal life and the broad way that leads to eternal destruction, over both gates is Jesus is the way. Because he's talking about in this context these false shepherds who disguise themselves to be ministers of Christ, ministers of righteousness, that will use the name of Jesus, preach from the Bible, but again distort it and pervert it. One of the, I think, most insightful statements that I've ever read was made by Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was probably uh, maybe the greatest theologian that has lived in the last hundred years. Uh, he died, I believe, around uh, 1980. And he made this simple statement. He said, the greatest enemy of Jesus Christ is the name Jesus. And what he meant by that was, is people will take the name Jesus, but it won't be the Jesus of the Bible. They will distort Jesus. They will twist the scriptures to mislead many. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. And then notice, go to verse 21 in the same context. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, notice that word many again and connect it with the many, uh, that word that we saw in uh, Matthew 24, verses 11 and 24. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The simple point is this. False shepherds know how to put on a show and especially with today's technology at their disposal. They become lost in visions of grandeur about themselves, and they will boast of great spiritual authority. Many will claim to have received direct revelation from God, or at least some special message from God that you desperately need, that you cannot live without. And they will try to wow you with an exercise of power or try to wow you with the size and success of their ministry. Look at the Second Peter 2 passage. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, 
Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. And so much can be said about that. But let this just stand as suffice. What Peter is saying is one of the areas that false shepherds are prone to abuse is the area of spiritual warfare to put on their show. I mean, they'll slay people in the spirit and they'll cast out demons and they will heal the sick. And one of the keys, listen to this, beloved, one of the keys in discerning false shepherds is the emphasis on power and success in ministry. They will emphasize power. They will emphasize success in ministry while neglecting purity of heart. While neglecting becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus, going back to Matthew 7, uh, skipped over so He said, you'll know them by their what? By their fruits. He says, don't examine their public ministry. Look at their private lives. Are they men of integrity? Are they men of character? Because that is the true proof of the pudding. Look at letter C. False shepherds entice the church with the promise of freedom from pain and personal gratification. False shepherds will entice the church with the promise of freedom from pain. And they'll also promise personal gratification. Second Peter, again, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. It says, they entice people. Circle that word entice. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. Paul says, for a time is coming, and we're in that time right now, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, these men, referring to false shepherds, are useless as dried up springs of water, promising much and delivering what? Nothing of any real substance and authenticity. They are as unstable as clouds driven by the storm winds. They are doomed to the eternal pits of darkness. Now go back to verse 18, 2 Peter 2, 18, and that word entice. Uh, we saw that, this word in an earlier message when we were looking at how to conquer temptation. And that word was a fishing term in the Greek text, and it literally means to catch with bait. What do false shepherds bait their hook with? The promise of freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from pain and the promise of personal gratifications. False shepherds know when people are in pain, that is when they are most vulnerable. Why? Because we can all relate to this. When you're, you are hurting you tend to lose objectivity. All you know is you want to stop hurting. The false shepherds masquerading as loving, caring shepherd promises freedom from pain or personal gratification and people come running by the droves. But in the end, as Peter says, they promise much while delivering nothing and they are doomed to the eternal pits of what? Darkness. Because although they promise freedom, they themselves are slaves of what? 
depravity when you examine their personal lives. So false shepherds, let's put it all together now, false shepherds exploit the church with persuasive words. They excite the church with a show of power, and then they will try to in, in, uh, uh, entice the church with the promise of freedom from pain and personal gratification. Now, there are two fundamental ways that this is happening in our churches today. And let me just, I, I only have time to briefly touch on them. The first is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is where Jesus is basically reduced to a genie in a bottle who exists to make all your wishes come true. Faith becomes the vehicle to name and claim all you need and all you want. Now, the second way that this is happening in so many of our churches is what I'll just call the packaged gospel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First, you determine the audience you want to reach. And then you package Jesus in a way that would make him attractive to that particular audience. And they do that by emphasizing all the benefits of the gospel while neglecting the responsibilities of the gospel. It's a distorted, twisted message. The gospel is simply reduced to a manual on how to live a happy and successful life. And all of this is very subtle. It's very deceiving. Whether it's the health, wealth, and prosperity, folks, or whether it's the package gospel, both preach and teach from the Bible. But they both focus. Here's the common denominator. They both focus on the gratification of the hearers to the neglect of what? The glorification of God. They reduce the, listen now, they reduce the gospel of Jesus Christ to nothing more than a placebo to pacify people. Instead of a message to live for and when necessary to suffer and die for in order to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They produce many professions but few disciples of Christ. And let me add, let me add, God entrusted the gospel of Christ to the church and to the church alone. And we are not to keep that gospel within the confines of the local church, but we are to go out and share that gospel with a lost world. And when any church, when any church or any Christian loses the priority of advancing the gospel, whether it's through corruption, whether it's through compromise, or just complacency, that church, that individual has lost their way and they are in need of revival. Look at letter D. The armor God provided the church to gain the victory over Satan. Now, I'm basically going to skip over this. The reason being, I'm going to build my entire next message on the armor of God and how to uh, appropriate that armor and use it not only for defensive purposes, but to take the offensive uh, to the devil in advancing the gospel. But we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, Shoes of peace of the gospel, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. Again, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace of the gospel, and the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. So again, I'm not neglecting this because it's very, very important truth. We need to know if we're going to withstand Satan's attacks 
and then take the offensive to gain the victory in advancing the gospel. Uh, but in my next message, we'll return to this and build an entire message on that. So let's finish before moving into the Lord's Supper on that letter E. Five questions to answer before exposing yourself to any minister. And this is such important, practical advice. Don't ever, ever, ever expose yourself to any man who claims to be a minister of Jesus Christ without answering these five questions. And here's the first one. Is this man or woman, whoever it might be, are they under strong accountability? False shepherds tend to have no accountability. They are it. And therefore, they have freedom to operate their basic business of greed and lust uh, without any accountability. It's interesting, as I mentioned there in the notes, of the 21 New Testament qualifications for a Christian leader, 20 of the 21 deal with a man's character and home life. 20 of the 21 deal with a man's character and his home life. What's the one lone qualification that does not? That he's what? Apt to teach. That he's skilled at handling God's Word. Look at the second thing. Is he preoccupied with acquiring wealth? The Bible says a minister is to be free from the love of money, not fond of sordid gain. Love is about sacrifice. And for a man of God, it's not about increasing your standard of living, but increasing your, what? your level of giving, giving to people, giving your resources to the family of God. So is he preoccupied with acquiring wealth? Third, is he skilled? In accurately handling God's Word. Is he skilled? Has he been trained to do so? Most heresies are truth out of balance, taught by men who have never been trained in biblical interpretation. Now again, I'm not trying to say you have to go to a formal school. You can be self-trained. But you need to examine this man. Is he skilled at accurately handling God's Word? And then here's one of the most important ones to get down. Number four. Does he teach the whole counsel of God's Word? Does he teach the whole counsel of God's Word? In other words, the issue for a false teacher is not truth. It's seduction. Therefore, he gives people what they want to hear, not what they ought to hear. So here's the best advice I can give you. When you're listening to a man or woman's ministry, whoever it might be, don't just listen to what they're saying Listen for what they're not saying. Is there the, me the message of repentance from sin? Is there a strong message of holiness and purity of heart and life? Sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ to advance the gospel, His glory. I mean, is it all just about power? Is it all just about gratification? Is it all about just fulfillment? So make sure that at the heart of that teaching, it's Christ-centered where it's going to lead people to, to establish Christ as the first love of their lives, their greatest passion, pursuit, and life, and the advance of the gospel. And then here's a good one, the fifth and last one. Is he committed to his home? The home is where the heart is revealed, and a false teacher doesn't want his heart exposed. So is he really committed to his home, and is he demonstrating that?
So I trust that's, that, 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 that's helpful. And we want to make the transition now uh, into the Lord's Supper. And, it, and it's really not difficult uh, to do so because we've been talking about false shepherds. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're talking about what? The true shepherd that we all want to rejoice in this morning and to celebrate. And let me just leave you three verses as we move into the Lord's Supper about the true shepherd. And this is, of course, the ultimate measure to any under-shepherds. Amen? John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, you remember what it says? He does what to it for his sheep? He lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what we celebrate right now as we come to the Lord's Supper. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have what? Gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord calls what? The iniquity of us all to fall what? On him. There on the cross, your iniquity, your sin was placed on Jesus. He died. For the punishment that you deserve to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God against your sin. So that today you could know His love, His unending mercy, and His grace, and His righteousness. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are are admonished in the Scripture to what? The key word, remember. Remember. This is a time to engage your mind, engage your heart, your affection, your will, and you remember. You look back at what Christ accomplished for you through his death, burial, and resurrection when he canceled out your sin debt and then imputed to your account all his righteousness to give you a right standing before God. And that's why God loves you with a love that will never let you go, a love that will never disappoint because of the love of Jesus. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, we not only look back, it's also a time what? To look forward. When Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper, he said, you know, there's coming a day when we will observe this, but what? At my return. And listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. It simply says there, and when the chief shepherd appears. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So yes, we look back And we celebrate what he accomplished for us. But we look forward to his return. Realizing when he comes, we will know eternal glory and reward. But we also realize when he comes, we will give an account as Christians for how we lived our lives. Were we surrendered to Jesus? Did we embrace the priority of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was Jesus our first love, greatest passion and pursuit in life? Did we live to exalt, magnify Him alone? And then, of course, we not only look back when we come to the Lord's Supper and remember what He accomplished, we not only look forward to the hope that we have, but one of the most precious things, He's present. He's a present help. There's present grace. And listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd, 
the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So we look back and we praise God for what he accomplished for us. We look to our future hope. But as we come, Jesus is here. He's the host. He's that shepherd that's ready to come to us and provide all that we need to please him. To provide all that we need to be equipped to serve him, to advance the gospel, to exalt and magnify him. So bow with me in prayer. As we surrender this time to the Lord, I'll ask, go ahead, deacons, elders, make your places to your positions as I pray. Father, we know that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, we're told that he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this represents my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we're told that at the conclusion of the supper, he also took the cup. And he said, men, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. My last will and testament that guarantees for all who put their faith in me, pardon from sin to be remembered no more. Purity of heart, a new heart. And me taking up residence in their lives. So Lord, we praise you for what you accomplished for us through your death, burial, and resurrection. We praise you for the future hope that we have of eternal life, the confidence, assurance of our of eternal life, and then how we praise you that you are dwelling in us, that our hearts are your home, and you live there to equip us to do your will, to live lives that will honor you, that when we do see you face to face, we can hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter now the joy of your Lord. For it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen.